I like that part in the song where it said that uh, death rejoiced as if heaven had lost. And we know that is not the truth, right? And so we celebrate today a glorious resurrection and a happy Easter uh, to everybody. Uh, many of us have heard of the term postmodern. Right? We, we've heard of this idea that truth is relative. And I think for most of us, we get the sense of what that means when we say truth is, is relative. But what is that idea that we are living in a postmodern society, right? How, how did we get to this place where that's what we talk about with truth, that there's not a, a standard that we all can believe and agree in at this point. Well, much of history functioned in a pre-modern society uh, where life was local, it was agrarian, uh, we functioned through farming to pretty much survive. And then um, we had kings, we had rulers, we had pharaohs, all of that existed. Uh, but pretty much most people lived by the sweat of their brow and, and by backbreaking work to survive in the actual fields. Um, and most of culture understood that there was a God or a multitude of gods that pretty much influenced their lives as, as blessings or as curses. And so as we roll through antiquity, we go through the Sumerians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, we move to the Greeks, we move to the Romans, Christ comes, and the church begins to expand. It's overlaid the atop, uh, over top of the expansion of the Roman Empire. But then Rome falls around 500 AD. And so society enters into the Dark Ages, and it continues for some time until eventually we hit the medieval times in the Middle Ages, where we, we have feudal society of kings and queens. And at this point, people are still living by agricultural work, but society is dominated by strict religious adherence, right? You, you follow the rules of what God has said. Well, that's how society continued. Until then came the bubonic plague. And at this point, society is now in an upheaval uh, as, as the plague just decimates much of the population. And so after the bubonic plague, society starts to shift. It starts to shift into uh, what we call uh, a more modern time period. It starts to shift from the fields and into the cities, and, and it starts to, to move towards more of an industrial phase of life. Right? People are becoming more educated. They're becoming more cultured. Things like, like the arts and the sciences are starting to happen. Uh, nations are, are being now understood on political boundaries, and that citizenship is a tied to an actual country like France or England or Germany. And out of this emerges the Renaissance, the scientific revolution, and the Enlightenment. And people are now looking at what had happened before, and they haven't abandoned God, but they now start to look at science and logic and reason. What is it that we can actually observe and test that is what is going to guide us in terms of direction and in terms of life and into constant progression. And so this is how society is now functioning, that logic and reason and science are the answers to our problems. And so we continue. 
Europe continues to expand. Continents become discovered, right? We, we have the Americas and, and countries are starting to, to have their own industrial revolution all around the world and civilization is progressing. And again, people are shifting from the fields to the factories at this point. And then along comes World War One. And all of World War I, they call it the Great War, the war to end all wars, because people said there is no way that humans can ever engage in such a war ever again like this. And then World War II happened. And World War II ended with the dropping of two atomic bombs. And now people thought, wait a minute, wasn't, wasn't science... And, and logic supposed to help us move forward? What, wasn't science supposed to make life better? We were, we were supposed to progress and, and not engage in, in this destruction. And so people were perplexed by this idea. And so now society starts to shift yet again. So we've gone from the pre-modern to the modern to now the post-modern understanding. And in a postmodern world, we, we, we become more global. Life became more service-oriented, right? Farming was for the true of heart, but, but now wealth, wealth was to be made on a global scale. That, that's where it was at. And as people were, were starting to, to traverse the world and as things happened like the Internet, we were able to realize that I could be anywhere in the world and talk to whoever I wanted to. And I could learn anything that I wanted at any point in history and time. And, and, and this thing comes along called Zoom and, and social media. And I figure out that I can touch base and interact with anybody that agrees with any idea that I have, regardless of how not nonsensical it might be, there's always somebody out there that could agree with my understanding. And so because there's all of these other people like me, I start to realize that God had failed humanity, science had failed humanity, and the only one that could make humanity right was myself and the culture in which I was in. But see, here's the problem. As we move and shift to that idea, how do we figure out what is right? How do we define morality? How do we establish what is actual truth? Because anywhere at any moment, I could be anywhere in this world and find any idea. And every culture and every place has its own idea of right and wrong. And every place has its own idea of what is truth. And so now what the world has said is, you know what? You just define it how you want. You define your own reality and your own world. You and your culture, those who live around you, can decide what is right and what is wrong. And so what has happened to truth? Truth has become relative, right? We shifted to a time period in the pre-modern where truth was absolute. There was a God that influenced your life. And then we shifted to the modern where we became ambivalent about truth. Sure, God might have been around, but there's another way to figure out truth. To now where truth is relative. 
where you and I can define whatever it is that we want in this world. And so that is where our culture stands. So today we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior, and we deal with this question of truth. We've been in this series, right, the trial of Jesus, and the job of a court is to weigh the facts and the evidence, to, to hear the case, the prosecution, the defense, to, to listen to the witnesses, and to make a judgment on what actually happened and then declare innocence or declare guilt and based off that innocence or based off that guilt to then establish what is appropriate justice to be administered out. So we've already seen that Jesus's trial, we said, was a sham. It was a kangaroo court. It was a facade. Uh, and then last week we talked about not only did Jesus endure the trial, but he suffered through it. He was mocked. He was humiliated. He was beaten and he was hung on a cross in the most brutal of all fashions. And what we talk about today is we need to understand that what Jesus stood for back then is just as important for what Jesus stands for today, and that is the truth of this trial. So if you have your Bibles, you guys can open up to John chapter 18. It's where we're going to spend much of our time today. Uh, but again, Jesus has been accused by the Sanhedrin. That is the religious and, and political ruling council of the Jews. They've brought him on trial for claiming to be the son of God. Uh, and in their minds, Jesus was not God. And so they accuse him of blasphemy and that he deserves to die. But the only problem is, is they're not allowed to do, they're not allowed to execute him. And so they take him before the Roman authority. They take him before Pilate and basically hoping that Pilate will acquiesce to their wish and their demands and have Jesus executed. And so Pilate is in this line of questioning with Jesus. So here we are, chapter 18, looking at verse 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. And Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. So again, Pilate's like, listen, I don't understand you guys. I don't really understand your religion. I don't really want to be dealing with this. So why don't you handle it and be on your way and leave me out of this? And they're like, we can't, Pilate. We don't have a right to execute somebody. If we didn't think he did wrong, we wouldn't be here. But we clearly believe that Jesus is in the wrong and deserves to die. So you need to handle this, Pilate. So Pilate goes back inside and he continues here, verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your people and your chief priest who handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, and if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate said. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. 
In fact, for this reason I was born and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, Pilate asked. And with this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. So, so Pilate goes in and he says, look, are, 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 are you the king of the Jews? This, this, is, this is what they're saying about you, Jesus. Are you the actual king of the Jews? He's like, again, I don't really get it. So help me try to understand what's happening here. And Jesus just doesn't right away go, yes, I am the king of the Jews. He gives him an interesting response, right? He's like, is, is that your idea, Pilate, or was that somebody else's idea? Because see, here, here's what I need to know, Pilate. Before I answer your question, I need to know who's actually asking this question. Is it you, Pilate, or are you simply the mouthpiece for someone else? I need to know, are you asking from a political standpoint, Pilate? Are you asking from a spiritual standpoint? Because if you want to know personally who I am, that's going to be a different answer that I give you. So I need to try to figure out really what is your line of questioning in this process? And Pilate's basically like, look, I'm not a Jew. Okay, stop messing around, Jesus. Again, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be handling with this. Okay, so stop playing with me, Jesus. Just answer the question. And Jesus is like, all right, fine. I'm a king. I'm a king. But I'll tell you what, I'm not a king from this world. Because if I was, my servants would be fighting for me. And for Pilate, this makes complete and total sense. He gets the idea of kings and kingships, right? He, he understands Roman might and he understands Roman power and expansion, right? That's what the world is going to be built on. But Jesus is letting Pilate know, he says, but, but my kingdom is different. See, my kingdom is not about violence and it's not about oppression. See, I'm bringing a kingdom that's about love and, and humility. And I'm bringing a kingdom about grace and forgiveness, St. Augustine, when he, he spoke of this idea of earthly kingdoms, he said they were based off of force and domination and that our pride yearns for human praise. So it seeks self-interest. And so Jesus is like, look, that's that's not what I'm after here right now. That's not what this is about. OK, again, if it was, my servants would be fighting for me, but they're not Pilate. I'm talking about a different kingdom. And so Pilate's like, so you are a king, but I don't have to be worried about you. That's that's what you're telling me, Jesus. Pilate's, yeah, you're right. I am a king, Pilate. But you do need to be worried. See, you need to be worried because it's for this very reason why I was born. It's for this very reason that I've come to testify about the truth about the true king and about the true kingdom and whoever is on the side of that truth listens to what I'm about to say. And so Pilate is basically like, Jesus is mad. Jesus is crazy. He's not making any sense. And he basically just says, ah, what is truth? And he gives himself a very flippant response so he can kind of get out of this mess and be on about his business. But it's ironic, isn't it? Pilate makes the statement, what is truth? 
as a way to dismiss this understanding and this idea. But isn't that the question we should all be asking? What is the truth? And what is the truth that Jesus is talking about? So let me go back through some information here and some things that Jesus has said to continue to flush out what is the actual truth. If we back up a little bit into John 18 and verse 20, he says, I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I was always taught in synagogues or at the temple. I, where all the Jews come together, I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I have said. And when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. And in this way, you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you hit me? So Jesus is speaking to the high priest and he says, look, I don't understand what this is all about. Ask anybody. I've never hidden anything of what I've been speaking about. I've always been in the open. And yet you strike me for what I've said. If I have said something wrong, please tell me and I would admit to that. And so why is Jesus on trial again? Matthew 26. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by living God. Tell us if you are Christ, the son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you in the future, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds in heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and he said, he has spoken blasphemy. We do not need to hear any more witnesses. Look, you have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death. They answered. So Jesus is charged with blasphemy, which is to, to speak uh, against something that is sacred, to speak against an amander that would slander uh, or profane the name of God. That's what blasphemy is. And they're accusing Jesus of this. And it's interesting because in that passage, Jesus is actually quoting something from Daniel chapter seven. When Daniel is, is speaking to the king and he's laying out a prophetic vision of what is to come. He says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is like one that will never be destroyed. So Daniel is speaking in the Old Testament here. He's speaking about this future coming, this future coming king and this kingdom that's going to arise. And he says, this king is going to come and he's going to have all power and all dominion. The whole earth will be his and all people will bow down and worship him. And so that is what Jesus is claiming. Jesus is saying, that guy in Daniel, that's me. I'm the coming king. I am the Messiah, the Christ. I am the son of God. And so when the Jews hear this, they're like, that is a lie. How dare you, Jesus, say something like that? You are not the Messiah. You are not the one that was promised to come. And what do we do? 
We stone you. That's what Leviticus told us, right? Leviticus 24, 16. Whoever blasphemies the name of the Lord shall be put to death. And all of the congregation shall stone him. So Jesus is on trial for blasphemy, which means if that is the, the, the charge, Jesus has to be lying in order to convict him of this. But what do we find as they go through this trial? Mark 14, for many bore false witnesses, false witnesses against him, but their testimony did not agree. Matthew 27, besides, while he was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife, this is Pilate's wife, sent word, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. And in Luke 23, Pilate called together the chief priest and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by this man. So everybody is trying to find reason to accuse him of blasphemy, to prove that Jesus is a liar and what happens. There's nothing that people can say. There's nothing to prove who he is. Because when they look at the life and the evidence of Christ, what do they find? What has Jesus done since he's been here? He has lived a life of compassion and care. He lived a life of love for people. He lived a life of righteousness. He didn't do anything wrong. He taught as one who had authority. And then he did the miracles. He did the miracles that only God himself could have performed. He turns water into wine. He multiplies the bread and the fish. He commands the wind and the rain. He makes the lame walk, the blind to see. He heals the sick. He walks on water and he brings the dead back to life. That is the only evidence that people have. And so as much as they're trying to prove that Jesus was a liar, they couldn't. What does that mean? Perhaps Jesus was actually telling the truth. Now here's another part of this trial I want us to see. Oftentimes Jesus was being questioned. And it oftentimes it said that Jesus didn't answer. Matthew 27, he gave no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. Luke 23, so he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. And in John 19, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Here's what I like about this. Is that as Jesus is on trial for his life, they're constantly bombarding him with statements and witnesses. And they're like, what do you have to say for yourself, Jesus? And he doesn't say anything. What are you going to say, Jesus? Your life is on the line. And he doesn't bother saying anything. Because, see, Jesus doesn't need to respond to false statements and questions and accusations. Jesus doesn't need to respond to needless, pointless questions about who he is. Because the only thing that mattered to Jesus was speaking the truth of what mattered most. And you know when Jesus answered their questions? When they asked, are you 
the Son of God? And Jesus would say, yes. But for all of the truth that was out there, what did we find? Jesus was found guilty of blasphemy and sentenced to death. But we've already said that this was a, a, an unjust system. We've already said all of the false statements that were out there. But we also have to understand that this was all part of God's plan. Let me go back to John 18 there for a moment. Then Pilate said, you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. And for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who was in the truth listens to my voice. I've come here to speak truth. I'm going to bear the truth. I'm a witness to the truth. And whoever listens to me is on the side of truth. Well, what else has Jesus said about truth? John 8, 31, 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had, who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 18, 32 then said, This was to fill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. See, the Jews wanted to execute Jesus, but they couldn't. So they had to take him to Pilate. Well, if, if the Jews had their way, Jesus would have been stoned to death instead of being crucified. And here's why this is extremely important, that Jesus stood before Pilate, that Jesus went into this trial and when Jesus would be crucified. Because when we look back in the scriptures about these messianic prophecies, what do we see? that Jesus had to die a death where his hands and feet would be pierced. Jesus had to die a death that his, his side would be pierced. So Jesus needed to go before Pilate to fulfill the scriptures and to not die by the hands of the Jews by a stoning because he had to fulfill what God had promised. And so when Jesus is hanging there on the cross and he's hanging next to the criminals, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, I tell you the truth. You will be with me in paradise. The truth is Jesus could have gotten off that cross if he wanted to. The truth is Jesus could have stopped this trial at any point. But the truth is Jesus had to go to the cross to save you and I. Isn't that what John 14, 6 tells us? I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Because Jesus gave up his life for us. Because Jesus shed his blood, we would have the forgiveness of sins. And Colossians 1 tells us, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace 
by the blood of his cross. So let me give one final part about this truth that Jesus is speaking about. In John 19, verses 19 to 22. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. And the chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. But this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. God has a real sense of humor, I think. You know, when a criminal was crucified, they would put a sign above there. And it was a warning to everybody else that said, here is what this person did. And if you commit that same crime, the same thing is going to happen to you. And so when Pilate makes a sign and it says the king of the Jews, that was his crime. The Jews are like, Pilate, we, we don't like that. We want you to say that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate is, is irritated. He is frustrated. He, and basically out of spite, he's like, I'm not changing this. What I have written, I have written. And in the Greek grammatical sense, that phrase, what I have written, I have written, is the perfect indicative active. Now, that probably means absolutely nothing to just about all of us here, unless you're probably an English major. But what that means is this, that when something is written in that form, it means that the action completed in the past, the effects of that action are still relevant in the present. That, that what has happened is now going to be an ongoing, permanent state because of what has been done. So, so when, when, when Pilate writes, he's the king of the Jews, and he says, what I've written, I've written, he basically is saying, I'm not changing that statement. And therefore, that statement is going to carry on forever. So what that means is Jesus was the king of the Jews then. Jesus is the king of the Jews now. And Jesus will be the king of the Jews forever. And the other thing about that is he writes it in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. Aramaic was the language of the Hebrews. Greek was the cultural language of the day. And Latin was the official and governmental language of the day. So what does that tell us that he wrote in three different languages? Pilate wrote a statement that anybody in the known world could understand. That Jesus was the king of the Jews. And so as we celebrate the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me go back to that statement when Pilate says, what is truth? Because here's the truth. That Jesus had to die to fulfill the prophecies and to be hung on a cross. 
The truth is, is that we are sinners in need of a savior and Jesus was that savior. The truth is that God loved us so much that he loved this world that he sent his son to die for us so that we could be back in relationship with him. And the truth is that Jesus not only claimed to be the son of God, but he rose from the dead to validate that claim that he is who he said he is and who he will forever be. And the truth is that Jesus has forgiven us by his blood and that whoever believes will be saved. And the truth is that when we celebrate the Easter season, this is our day of jubilee. This is our day of atonement. And when, when Pilate wrote that sign up there as a warning to the rest of the world, it was not a warning, but it was a proclamation to the world that Jesus Christ is king. And that is what we celebrate. So we live in a world that says, what is truth? This is the truth that Jesus died for, and it is the truth that I am willing to give my life for. Let's pray. Father, what a, what a, oh. Father, you love us. You love us so much. Lord, you gave your life, you have shed your blood, and we live in a world that is constantly assaulting who you are, claiming you to be a liar, calling us to be fools. But Lord, we stand on that firm rock of foundation that you went to the cross and you died and you rose again. Lord, it is this event that validates our faith, Lord, and I thank you so much. And Lord, I just pray that we live in that truth, that it brings peace and comfort to our soul to know that we are so loved to know that, that, Lord, there is something better that awaits us. And for all of what life throws at us, Lord, we are called to stand firm and we are called to proclaim that truth. So thank you, God. Thank you, God. And let us continue for today and forever to glorify you. Because, Lord, it is your praise it is the lips of our mouths that should speak your glory because of what you have done for us. Amen.